in today's episode, listeners, we're in for a little treat. I've got Kimberly <laughs> Anderson here. Kimberly Anderson. Hi. The one, the only, the classy, the poised. Oh. So I met you in person for the first time, wow, yesterday. Indeed. And you literally walked into the pavilion because we were doing a meet and greet. And I couldn't take my eyes off you. Wow. Seriously. I'm not joking. I was like, wow, she commands the room. I don't know if you even realize you do this. It's kind of a superpower. Wow. <laughs> the serpent did beguile me and I did eat. Your <laughs> eyebrows were on point last night. Oh my God, that's hilarious. I have a person, a friend of mine who has been my eyebrow mentor. And we have been, no, I'm serious about this. We've been talking about eyebrows and we've been talking about how thick is too thick. And she's like, no, keep going. More thick, more thick, more brow. Love it, love it. And I'm like, are you sure? She's like, no, no, keep going. More brow. It's like the more cowbell. <laughs> I'm telling you guys, you're going to want more cowbell. And she's like, Always. I'm telling you, Kimberly, you're going to want more eyebrow. <laughs> it rhymes a little bit. Kind of does. I mean, can you have too much percussion is what I want to know. Well, okay. The answer is probably yes. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> In some circumstances. Yeah. So we're flying without Shelly. Yeah, this is true. Shelly's taking a nap. She's taking a nap. Yep. And then she's gearing up for more parental stuff. So she's we're going to give her a well-deserved break. Well-deserved well -deserved break. break. Well-deserved. Yeah. Speaking of breaks, I think we should take one and come back and get into the episode. What do you think? Do I get to be on the other side of the break, too? You do. Sweet. Oh, you're okay. not going anywhere. Okay, then, then take the break. Definitely <laughs> okay. take, the break. take the break. Then we'll be right back. Are you struggling to lose weight and keep it off? Tired of wasting time and money on starvation diets that lead to more frustration and stress? If there was a weight loss solution that could actually work for you, would you try it? Then head to golo.com. I'm Steve. I lost 138 pounds in nine months on Golo. I'm Amber. I've lost 128 pounds with Golo. If you're ready to take back control of your life, head to golo.com now and see how Golo can work for you. That's golo.com. My sleep is way better. My inflammation has gone way down. Golo saved my life. I was way overweight. That's what sent me down the path. I wanted to make sure and live for my kid. I have literally tried everything. I was on the verge of getting gastric bypass surgery, and I saw the Golo commercial, and it was the last thing I tried because it worked. Join over 2 million people who found a better way to lose weight with Golo. Your healthier and happier life begins at Golo.com. That's G-O-L-O.com. Again, G-O-L-O.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Lesbian, the podcast about an ex-Mormon gay girl just trying to figure out her life. And that applies to Kimberly Anderson. Absolutely. I am still trying to figure out my life. I am still very ex-Mormon. I am still very gay. <laughs> you checked all those boxes. I check all those boxes. Yeah. <laughs> Probably all of them will never be fully resolved. I think that's where I'm at. Well, you know what? It's about the journey, not the destination, as they say. You'll be a great therapist one day. <laughs> <laughs> you keep telling me. Uh, and that's true. <laughs> I just play one on a podcast. It's good enough for now. <laughs> as long as you don't diagnose or prescribe, it's all good. <laughs> right? I could be really misdirecting some people. But my name is Mary. Welcome to the show. My name is Kimberly. Welcome to the show. Okay. So I wanted to piggyback a little bit 
on last episode. So we had Diana on last episode. Love you, Diana. Oh my gosh, love you. Love her too. Serious girl crush, voice crush on Diana. Just, oh, right? God, yes. Get in line, sister. You and everybody else. How long's the line? <laughs> Probably super long. It's around the block. At least. We kind of left it on a cliffhanger a little bit because I was asking some deep dive sort of questions and her answer was, let's go to therapy, <sighs> which is not a bad answer at all. It's not a bad answer. It's yep. a great answer. Yeah. So, you know, here we have at our disposal, a therapist in our friend, Kimberly Anderson. <sighs> How handy is that? It's quite handy if that's what you need. Someone named Kimberly that happens to be a therapist. Yeah. All of us need that. Uh, okay, okay. I hate hyperbole. <laughs> and I know there is at least one listener out there that's very well adjusted that doesn't need a therapist. But in my opinion, everyone needs a therapist. For sure. I have five therapists. Wow. And I'm actually not kidding about that. I have five people at my disposal, that have agreed to be in my core that I can refer to when needed if the shit gets down and gets thick for me. And it does. We hear stuff that we need to process on our own, and um, we don't need to burden our clients with that. But, you know, we do need to get uh, a, a listening ear for our stuff, both our inner stuff, but also to help, you know, work through some of the challenges that we hear that we hold for other people. Um, and that should never be the client's responsibility to make sure that their therapist is comfortable in treatment because that's not how it works. Therapist is supposed to be the one taking care of you. And I'd like to demystify the whole process and share with people that even as a therapist, I need a therapist or two or three or five. And that's okay. Oh, it's totally okay. It's better than okay. I'm incredibly blessed to have this amazing, loving, caring, unconditionally uh, kind of accessible group of people and I am part of their group as well. And it's just a, it's a lovely reciprocal relationship. I love that. Yeah. Before we get into where we left off from last week, what are we drinking right now? We're drinking the same thing. We are. So we are in the Sunstone headquarters in Salt Lake City, Utah. Mm -hmm. We are drinking from uh, more than one way to Mormon Pilsner glasses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was a hard P. I hope the pop filter catches that P. <laughs> uh, and the bever beverage that we're drinking is a lovely, it's a hard cider. Yeah, I found this in uh, in Salt Lake. No, somewhere in Utah. I can't remember where. Wait, you found something worth drinking somewhere in Utah? This was from Utah. Really? Yeah. I opened the can and poured it in and started drinking. I didn't even read what it was. It's like some sort of cider. It's a lemongrass cider. It's oh. delicious. It's got a little bite to it. Mine's mostly gone. Yeah, you you did good work on that. You may hear me burping from time to time in this podcast. <laughs> I really hope so, because that will prove you're human. Uh. We need to know you're a human. <laughs> well, you heard earlier that I was a human. <laughs> We don't have to go into details, everybody. <laughs> uh, okay. But there might have been a bathroom involved. Woo! <laughs> TMI! Oh. But, okay, so we walk into this liquor store, and it was somewhere between Salt Lake City, maybe, and, and Lehigh. I don't know where I am, honestly. This is either the setup for the world's best Utah joke or the world's worst Utah joke. And <laughs> we all walk into a bar. Right. Well, we walked into a liquor store, and I was like, ah. Oh, my people. <laughs> That's kind of how I felt. <laughs> oh, so you saw someone with like colored hair and a tattoo and some piercings. And no celestial smiles anywhere. Um, that was nice. Where will you go? Right. Yeah, well, I'll tell you where I'm going to go. Liquor I'm going to the liquor store. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the coffee shop and, and the, the liquor, liquor store. store. <sighs> Possibly in that order. Maybe not. Well, one will get you going and one will slow you down. <laughs> so you need both. Clearly. You can use both. Yeah. 
It's kind of like when people do Red Bull and vodka. It's like, well, what is it? An upper or a downer? I'm not sure. I don't know that I've ever done that. And I'm a big fan of the vodka and I hate the Red Bull. So I don't recommend it personally. I had a job that I shot for Red Bull years ago when I was a photographer. And on location, the only drink that they brought was Red Bull. Mm. And this was in the Nevada desert. <laughs> and we're shooting four-wheel drive vehicles for this ad. And I'm dying of thirst. And I'm like, which guys bring to drink? And they cracked open the cooler. And I'm like, oh, good, you've got something good. And it was only Red Bull. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Oh, that's horrible. It was horrible. Well, I'm glad you survived it. And you are here with us today. Barely. <laughs> it's a good story, though. I love the validation. You will be a great therapist one day. <laughs> Everyone out there, honestly, my life mission is to make anybody that's queer, that's a good listener, that's non-judgmental. My life's mission is to turn you all into therapists. So just know that that's going to come down the pike. At some point. Fair warning. You know, there could be worse goals out there. There are worse goals. <laughs> I want to turn everyone into a non-Mormon, or ex-Mormon, rather. Okay. That's a pretty big goal. Our goals are somewhat in alignment. <laughs> <laughs> then we got to work on the guilt and shame piece. Oh, we are talking about that today. Oh, yeah. This is kind of why we're here. Definitely. So why don't we dive in? Okay. So with Diana, we were talking about that well that never seems to run out of yeah. that need for approval and validation. Right. And the question I posed to her was, how do you start to feel that internally and stop looking for that externally? Because it seems like you never feel that, right? It depends on the individual, whether or not it seems like you're able to feel that or not. Uh, if you lack a certain sense of, of self-confidence or self-image um, or secure attachment, we call that resiliency often. If you lack that inner resiliency, then you have nothing to turn to. If you weren't taught that as a child, if you were unable to develop that capacity as an adult, then yeah, you're trying to fill uh, your cup from an empty well. And that doesn't go too well, to use the word well several times in the same sentence. Let's keep using it. Well, <laughs> it's a hard thing to teach us this resilience. I'm certain that we will tap into that more as we move through this. And I did hear the, the last podcast, and, and I think that Diana brings up some good questions. And I like the way that she was actually unable to answer some of your hard questions at the end. Mm -hmm. And she went, she went to the place like, well, this is kind of the way we seek external help. Mm -hmm. We go to therapy. That's one way that you can learn this is to go to therapy. You don't necessarily have to go to therapy, but it's a great place to be able to learn some of these skills. So I appreciate her um, validating and endorsing uh, therapeutic relationships. Uh, I do know that therapy has some barriers to entry, though, uh, for many disenfranchised people, for many minority communities, uh, both sexual and gender minorities, certainly racial minorities. Uh, finding a therapist that not only is affordable and accessible, but is also competent, it is really, really, really hard. Yeah. So I, I want to validate the struggle uh, that it can be for many people to find a good, competent, accessible, affordable therapist. Right. And so it's a daunting task sometimes. It can be a very daunting task, yeah. So potentially it's like, uh, it just wears me out even considering that. And so this speaks to the reason I'm back in Utah, actually. I am currently working for Flourish Therapy with Dr. Lisa Tensmeyer Hansen as my supervisor. Flourish Therapy, as your listeners may know by now, our population are LGBT people and their parents and their families. We have an incredibly generous system of donors. We're always looking for more donations. It's a 501c3, but we have secured a pretty healthy couple of uh, donations to allow our clients to access 
sliding scale therapy, mm. sometimes therapy that is, you know, $5 a session. It's awesome. Uh, so if, if uh, therapy is inaccessible due to cost, Flourish, if you're a queer or trans person, Flourish is very accessible. Even if you can't get to me, we are in COVID still. So telehealth is the only way I'm seeing clients. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's a lovely way to bridge the gap of distance and inaccessibility through the, through the computer. I love that. Yeah. As a reminder, 10% of all of our Patreon tiers go to Flourish Therapy. Love that. I know. And I wanted to mention, so we've been talking about this uh, temple finger book, as, as Shelly likes to call it. Oof. I know, right? Where we give the various temples the <laughs> finger. We drove past the Solic Temple just an hour ago. I know. And I gave the finger to the Provo Temple just the other day. Uh, Someone submitted the Salt Lake City Temple. I'm going to need, this is just a quick announcement about that. I'm going to need the originals for all of those. So once you put them up on Facebook, there's compression that happens and it's not necessarily the greatest quality for publishing. So uh, you could either private message me because most of the, I think these are coming through the Facebook group for the most part, or you can send an email to contact at latterdaylesbian.org to send those original pictures. Please send the originals. Send the originals. Now you're talking my language. Yes. We want zero compression. We want high fidelity. We want original copies. Yes. Correct. And Shelly and I have decided to donate all of the proceeds to Flourish Therapy. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. We'll take it. We will put it to good use. I know you will. And I, so I hope everyone buys a copy. Yeah, I, I can uh, assure you that the money that is being used for these scholarships, the money that LDL listeners and Patreon subscribers, I can promise you, oh, I may get emotional. These are some of the most amazing clients I've ever worked with. They are some of the most well-deserving people I've ever worked with. And everyone out there that's listening to this knows as well as I do that we are recovering from trauma within Mormonism. And queer space, that intersectional space in the Venn diagram, it's real. And the healing, healing is possible. And uh, even that six bucks a month, that lowest Patreon tier that I'm on, I'm on the lowest one. Actually, it's $2 is the lowest. Oh, is it $2? Yeah. I think it must be on the. So I'm actually feeling really rich now. <laughs> even the $2 level, you guys. Uh, and this is not a fun drive. I feel all of a sudden like Jerry. Uh, oh, who is that guy? Jerry. Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis. Hey, lady. <laughs> I don't remember what that was from, but he said it. <laughs> oh, how long ago was that? that was? That's thirty uh, years ago. That's thirty-five years ago. That's a long time ago. That dates us. We that are definitely old, dates Kimberly. Us. <laughs> oh, okay, so speaking of old, I gave a presentation last week at US or UVU's suicide prevention conference, and in my PowerPoint deck was a study that alluded. The study was titled uh, "A Gerontological Society of America." It was a uh, study of conversion therapy survivors of men who have sex with men. Oh, wow. And uh, this is a survey that was done of individuals ages, you know, 50 to 75. And I'm in that group. I'm 52 years old. So I ostensibly am in the Gerontological Society of America's survey range for that. And I'm not sure that I like, I really like the association with Gerontological Society, but (laughs) be that as it may, that's what it was. Anyway. Thank you for your donations to Flourish. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say about the Temple Finger Book, we've had a couple of good uh, submissions for a different title. One is The Fingered Temple. Ooh. And the other one is Fingering the Temple. Ooh. <laughs> it's a little creepy, but funny. Uh... Maybe we'll put a poll up. And we'll take your submissions. Uh, let the masses decide. Let the masses decide. Let them speak. <laughs> All right. Let's do that. So more to come 
on that front. But yes, proceeds after all the manufacturing costs, et cetera, will go to Flourish. So that's fantastic. Excited about that. That's very generous. Thank you. Oh my gosh. That's the least we can do. So let's get back to our conversation. So how does one who has not been taught resilience, who has not been taught that their opinions matter, they haven't been taught they have a voice, they haven't been taught to have an opinion. How does somebody look inside and think, wow, I did this today. I nailed that when you don't feel that at all. It might be helpful to maybe just back up and understand where those feelings of inadequacy come from. Because I think sometimes we lack some context about why we are the way that we are. And when we find that we are acting or behaving or reacting in certain ways, we judge ourselves harshly for that uh, for no good reason. We don't understand that we were basically brought up this way. We were taught this way. We were indoctrinated this way from a very young age, especially if we were, quote, born in the covenant and went to primary from uh, you know, nursery on up. These are things that we were taught, especially those of you assigned female at birth and who were raised as girls in the primary, raised as young women. These messages are extremely damaging and were focused more on your side of the aisle, so to speak, than on my side of the aisle. I was assigned male at birth and I was raised as a boy. Uh, So the messages that I heard were messages of empowerment. Mm. My messages that I heard were messages of my voice mattered. You had a birthright to have your voice be heard. Mm. You were divinely foreordained, predestined to be the leader of your household. Wow. In the temple, the women across the aisle bowed their heads and said yes and promised to obey me Mm. as I listened to another man. Not as I listened to a woman, but as I obeyed Father. And I know that you guys have recently gone through the the whole temple ceremony, and by now, most certainly, you have have gone through this language Mm -hmm. and have had things to say about the women vowing their allegiance and obedience to their men or their husbands. Yes. And then the husbands only get to uh, uh, obey father. Mm -hmm. So the women have an additional filter. They can't go to heaven unless it's through a man. Right. They can't gain exaltation unless it's through a man. They can't uh, increase in celestial glory except it's through a man. Mm -hmm. Men are never taught that it's very rarely are we taught or that I remember being taught that my glory, my exaltation, my celestial glory or divine destiny was through a woman. It never was. It was because I was assumed it was, I, I would get married and that would be my key through. Right. But with women, it's a totally different path and it's taught in a much different fashion from the earliest of ages. Even the young women's lessons, you're taught to bake, sew, design your wedding look, design your temple dress. These young girls are getting pictures taken uh, in their mother's wedding dresses as young women's activities, preparing them for their dream wedding in the temple. We never did that as young men. Yeah, and aren't they expected to journal about their uh, their mate someday? Yep. <laughs> Ways, you know, that I will make the perfect bride. Uh, in fact, I believe there's a copy of um, Fascinating Womanhood yeah. in the office right now. So yep, there is. I don't know if we'll be able to get to that today or not, but we might be able to turn to some pages in that. But I think going back to the question, how do we develop it? I think it's important to know that if we didn't develop it, largely it was because we weren't taught it. We weren't allowed to develop it, or if we tried to develop it, there was probably a good chance that it was pulled out of us by being told that that wasn't our role, it wasn't our station, it was beyond what we were supposed to be doing. Mm. So ladies, women, and people who were assigned female at birth, you may be feeling this way because you were never allowed 
to develop it. You were never taught that you were worthy of that. You were never expected to generate an inner well of resiliency, an inner well of of self-confidence and self-awareness and self-compassion to turn to yourself for answers to simple things. Yeah. So please, 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 if you're feeling this way because of the way that you were brought up as a child, please hold yourself with grace and compassion Mm. and gentleness. Yeah. Because this is not your fault. Often, when I'm working with trauma victims, I have to change my frame of view and I have to change it from what's wrong with you I have to change it from what's wrong with you. And instead, I have to look at them through the lens of what has happened to you. Mm. This is not something inherently flawed in you. You are the way that you are because of specific circumstances that happened to you. Yeah. One of the diagnoses that's actually fairly recent and a little controversial is the diagnosis of complex PTSD. Mm. And one of the diagnostic criteria for CPTSD is that you are, as a child, are raised by a narcissistic parent, and you are subject to narcissistic abuse for years on end. Now, if we take a look at the Mormon Church as an institution, and we apply the qualities or the characteristics of a narcissistic individual, we lay that over the top of the church, we see very clearly that the church itself follows a pattern of narcissistic behavior. Absolutely. So not only might we have been raised by one or two parents who were narcissistic, usually it's only one parent who is the narcissist. The other often is an empath. So not only are we often raised by a narcissistic parent, but we are also indoctrinated and raised within a high-demand religious organization that is also very extremely narcissistic in behavior. Mm. Narcissistic behavior sucks us dry. It removes us of our self-worth. It removes us of our self-confidence. It removes us of the ability to generate and uh, formulate our own inner sense of resiliency. So if you're feeling that way today, people listening, please know that this is not your fault. This is not anything inherently damaged within you. You most certainly are not broken. I don't believe in people being broken. I do know that people have challenges that can be helped and fixed, but you are not broken. I want to make sure that we hear that very clearly. Often I tell people that I work with, especially young queer people, that when I see them, I tell them that I don't believe that they're broken and they just break down because they're never told that they're not broken. Oh, man. They're never told that they have an excuse to feel this way. They're never told that there's a reason that they're feeling this way, that it's not their fault. Wow. So if you're feeling that way out there while you're listening to this, this is hard stuff to hear. So bravo to you. Kudos to you. I celebrate the fact that you can even listen to a podcast like this because sometimes these words are really hard to hear, that you're not broken. Because I know internally, often we do feel like we're broken. And hearing an external message of not being broken, you feel like you're being lied to. You feel like you're being gaslit. Well, Kimberly thinks I'm not broken, but that's not true. I felt broken my entire life. Well, Kimberly's here to tell you, you're not broken. Mm. You're absolutely perfect, exactly the way that you are. Kimberly, I love you. And I know our listeners do too. Mm. We need more Kimberleys. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, thank you. I don't know. Can the world handle more Kimberleys? No, they can't. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing message for people to hear. Yeah. Yes. One of the most beautiful ways that I've heard that spoken to, that message of perfection, inherent perfection, is by Neil deGrasse Tyson. He has a 
stunningly beautiful, eloquent presentation that he calls Stardust. It's on YouTube. Uh, And he talks about people being perfect because we are the material that created the universe. Mm. We are the material that was ejected from stars. Yeah. We are the perfect, perfect beings inherently because of the things we are made of are perfect. We are taught that we're not perfect right? by a system that it wishes to instill guilt and shame and fear. Mm-hmm. The carbon that we are built of, the molecules, the DNA, the pumps and valves and neurons and nerves, all the things that make us who we are, it is all perfect. Even in our ugliest, quote, shittiest moments, we are perfect because we are the material of stars. That's beautiful. That's completely plagiarized and lifted from Neil deGrasse Tyson. But what a great message and reminder. It's a beautiful message. I share it all the time. We are not told this. No, we're not. I know. I I was never told this as a kid. Especially in high demand religions where you're just, you never can do enough. Mm -hmm. You can never do enough. It's never, ever enough. And so that goes kind of full circle back to the checklist that Diana was talking about Mm -hmm. that we could never catch up. How many of us have an internal treadmill that we cannot turn off, that the more we try to turn it off, we just turn up the speed? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So it's Baby Steps, right? One of my favorite movies is What About Bob? Okay. (laughs) I love Bill Murray. I love Richard Dreyfuss, and I love that film. It is about Baby Steps. It's such a cliche, but it is so true. We talk often about this um, fake it till you make it mantra. Mm -hmm. Uh, Such a cliche, and it's true. I know when I started teaching years ago, my first days of teaching, honestly, my first months of teaching at the university, I was terrified. Serious imposter syndrome. Yeah. What did I do? You did it anyway. I did it anyway. That's right. Yeah. Earliest days of transitioning from presenting and living as male to transitioning and living and presenting as female. One billion percent fake it till you make it. I still feel that way. Yeah. Walk out the door every single day. I am faking it till I make it. I don't know when I'm going to make it. So I always ultimately feel like I'm still faking it. Now people look at me and like, oh, Kimberly. (laughs) Right? And that's true. All those things that everyone says to me about elegant and whatever, that is all true. I am owning some of that. Uh, It is hard to own those things because I still feel like in the back of my head, where my brainstem is located, by the way, where messages of not feeling good enough, those are buried in there deep. Yeah. That's where those messages of you're never going to make this. You're never doing it good enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. Mm. That's where those messages are buried. Yes. So we are taught these things from a very young age. Okay, I'm going to stop because I'm now going into other material that I know we want to cover with guilt and shame. Also, I think that it's amazing and kudos to you for doing it anyway, even though it's hard, even though you don't believe that you're doing it. Yeah. No, thank you. It is hard. And anybody out there that says, oh, well, it's easy for Kimberly to do. It is not easy for me to do. It is hard for me to do. Yeah. You will see me walk out of here today feeling like I'm still faking it. Mm. In fact, in this moment, this very second of recording the podcast, I still feel like I'm faking it. So it will never go away. But your eyebrows are rocking. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to give a shout out to Stacy for the eyebrow tutelage. <laughs> yep. Stacy from St. George, you know who you are. I love you to death. I will never live up to your brow magnificence. <laughs> But I will try. Okay, can we talk to maybe just for right now in a slightly neglected group is the men, mm. the Mormon raised people who identified as male at birth. How do you say that? Well, there's kind of a million ways to say it. One of the ways we say it is assigned male at birth. Okay, assigned male. That's what I was looking for. Because that, that's me. I assigned male at birth. I'm a trans woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, many gender non-binary people were also assigned male at birth. But yeah, 
So the people assigned male at birth, acculturated at birth, raised as boys. Yeah. Uh, you want to address them? I'd love to. Sure, because you're taught that you're validated or whatever. You're taught that you have a voice. What if you're the kind of guy that just doesn't believe it and is like, oh my gosh, it's too much pressure. I can't live up to this pressure. Does that happen? Uh, yeah, it does happen. Feelings of inadequacy. Mm-hmm. Maybe you didn't reach that calling that maybe your father had or your brothers had. And so that goes to this idolization of the people that raised us. Uh, it's hard to be put on a pedestal and then fall off. There's a lot of reasons why that can be true. Often, even when we get those messages of you're the person that does have the right to be heard and and has the right to make decisions and has the right to celestial glory as a god, and you get the one that gets to make planets, even amongst all that, there are other messages that we receive at a young age that can counter those messages that we hear later. I'm going to give the audience some homework. I know Diana talked about homework. I gave her homework. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. You gave her homework. And I'm like, Mary, that's my line. <laughs> I'm going to give that the homework. But I'm a therapist in training. That's right. You're, you're a Padawan therapist. The force is strong in this one. <laughs> I think the force was strong with you earlier in the bathroom. Oh, the force was way strong. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Hey, I thought you said you didn't hear that. I actually didn't. I was doing my own thing and you're like, oh, God, did you hear that? Oh, good. There's a horse in here with me. I swear. <laughs> Somebody step on a duck. Ooh. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Where were we? Oh, Diana and the homework. I want to give some homework out. And this is kind of serious. Uh, sometimes as therapists, we give out homework for people to work on between sessions. And some of it's lighthearted. Some of it's not so lighthearted. This particular homework might be a little heavy. So if you're up to it, um, you can take this challenge to do some research on attachment theory. You can do some research in finding out what your attachment style is. Google is your friend. You will find podcasts. You will find TED Talks. You will find websites. You will find self-help books. You will find lots and lots of stuff about attachment. And what you will find is that there are four main attachment styles. And I don't want to spend a lot of time going over them all because if I do, I will do it wrong. But Google is your friend with this. Find your attachment style. Usually we learn this attachment style between ages one and three. Usually by age one, we have had enough experience with a primary caregiver that we were able to identify our attachment style or we formed our attachment style. And once we're able to, as an adult, look back and see what our attachment style was as a child, it really can explain a lot of the ways we are as adults. Mm. And that can show up as inability to maintain constant secure relationships that can be an inability to uh, show yourself in an authentic capacity or in an authentic fashion. It can often show up as being devious or non-trusting or not trustworthy, able to deceive easily. It can speak often to the inability to generate that inner source or that inner well of self-reliance. So attachment theory, this is James Bull, I think it's James Bowlby. It is Bulby, but I can't remember his first name. It's not James. We can look it up and put it. We'll put it in the show notes. So Bulby is the guy that tar- starts talking about attachment theory. And this is back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and he looks at, at two different populations. One is in Uganda and one is in America. And then looking at infants and how they attach to their primary caregiver and how they react to strangers being in the room and how they self-soothe and et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of really good material on this. One podcast that I will pitch. Can I pitch another podcast during your podcast? Yeah. Please, listeners, if you are interested in in psychology at all, human relationships, interpersonal relationships, please listen to Therapists Uncensored. Therapists Uncensored is an amazing podcast. I have learned, honestly, a lot about attachment theory 
and in particular, polyvagal theory. I'm throwing some $10 words out. (laughs) Uh, Good thing this is a podcast that you can rewind and take some notes from. Uh, Attachment theory is huge on how we interact as adults and how we react with ourselves inwardly as an adult as well. Please, 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 listeners, if you have it within you, if you have the capacity, if you have internet access, please do some research on attachment theory. I love it. On that note, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with more conversation with Kimberly. We're back. Woo. So earlier, Kimberly, we had planned, and I'm talking like a month ago or so, you and I planned to do a guilt and shame episode. And I think Shelly was invited. We were not, we were not excluding Shelly, <laughs> but we also know that she is really burnt out right now. And so she's not going to participate and that is just fine. She needs some time for self-care, right? And the last thing we want to do is have her feel guilt and shame over not participating or taking care of herself. Exactly. <laughs> In a guilt and shame episode. Right. Yes. <laughs> That's all kinds of irony right there or something. Very, very <laughs> ironic. So how do you want to dive in? Guilt and shame. Yeah. There is a lot of talk about guilt and shame. And um, a lot of people talk about the symptoms of guilt and shame. And that's been covered to death by a lot of popular um, writers and, and speakers and presenters. I don't want to talk about the symptoms of guilt and shame. I kind of want to talk about the cause, the root causes of guilt and shame. Okay. And it's a little bit different than ways people that may have heard about this in the past. Unless you're a patient or a client of mine, and I talk about this all the time. But if you're not, this might be the first time you've heard anybody talk about guilt and shame this way. So I, I might take a little bit and tease this out. And I wish that this was a video. Honestly, I wish this was like a whiteboard. If I had 20 feet of whiteboard and a set of five black markers, I'd fill it all and all those markers would be dry. Yeah. I love talking about this and writing about this. Often we talk about guilt and shame as a pair, as a couple. Hmm. They are two separate and distinct creatures. I'll start out by talking about shame. Shame is external. Shame does not originate within us. Hmm. We are not born with an internal sense of shame, nor are we born with an internal sense of guilt. We'll get to that later. Okay. Shame is an external force, is an external condition that is applied to us by someone outside of us or an institution outside of us, or often it's a religious structure that's outside of us. But the shame is the outside force acting on us, sending us messaging that says, you should be this way. Hmm. You need to be this way. Right. You have to be this way. Setting a very demanding, rigorous expectation that you, the receiver of the shaming message, you have a very difficult time wiggling out of. Hmm. The shaming messages will be, you need to act a certain way. You need to think a certain way. You need to read certain things. Right. You should behave this way. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't speak up. Right. Think of how many times we are told what we should do, mm-hmm. what we need to do, what we have to do. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes there are legitimate times when we do have to do things. Stop, drop, and roll. That's a great example. Exactly. For safety reasons. Duck and cover. <laughs> sure. Right. <laughs> you're preserving your life. Right. Or you're taking care of responsibilities at work or you're responding to an emergency situation, or you're responding to responsibilities at home, there are certain things that we have to do. Mm -hmm. But when that messaging is coming at a really super young age, 
by an external force or an external source that you're really trying to please, that's when you say, oh, I'm foregoing a part of myself to take on this external message of what I really should be. Mm. When you go counter to your inner sense of who you know you are and you adopt something from someone else that says this is how you should be, that's what shame is. Mm-hmm. That's the origin of shame. Mm. Sucks. Does suck. Yeah. On the movie poster of my life, I will be played by Charlize Theron. It's already been negotiated. There you go. <laughs> on the movie poster of my life, it's, you know, the movie poster takes place on the Salt Flats in the West Desert of Utah. Charlize Theron, me, I'm in a badass outfit. And across the field of battle, these other two characters, shame and guilt. Those are my foes. Yeah. That's what I'm eradicating off of the face of the earth. Shame and guilt and a really ugly sidekick called fear. Ah, uh, right. The product of shame and guilt is often fear. Yeah. My goal in life, either personally, interpersonally, relationally, therapeutically, professionally, spiritually, my goal is to eradicate shame and guilt from the face of the earth. That's my movie poster. Played by Charlize Theron, of course. What's your weapon of choice? So in the movie poster, you got the badass eyebrows, obviously. Yes. And she's blonde, of course. I'm blonde, of course. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I'm blonde, of course, yeah. Of course, naturally. <laughs> no, naturally blonde, naturally. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right. So what is your weapon of choice, Charlize Theron? You know, you're standing there, you're opposing the enemy, shame, guilt, fear. What you got? One simple thing that we are born with. What's that? Love. Oh. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's the weapon of choice to fight shame and guilt and fear. The only thing that really can do it is love. Ah, oh, wow. Gosh, that kind of gave me chills a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Secret weapon is love. Yes. Uh, what else have we got? Yeah. Doesn't cost us anything. Mm-hmm. We do need to refine it. We do need to practice it. And if we don't use it, it often becomes rusty. Mm-hmm. If we overuse it, then it turns into something else. Hmm. But really, the only thing that I have taken and kept from Mormonism, then it's not exclusive to Mormonism. Let's be real about this. The only thing that I've kept is love. That's it. So you feel like you learned that growing up Mormon? Love? Yeah. I learned the absence of love. Okay. And this is a very personal story that I've never talked about anywhere, except I'll talk about here with you. Oh, yes. When I was a child, my mother was a singer. We were a performing family. I, I know you know what that's like. Mm-hmm. And we often rehearsed and performed programs for communities in Cache Valley. As part of that, we would you know, perform in our sacrament meeting at church quite often. Okay. And one of the songs that we would sing, I Might Cry, talking about this. Mm. One of the songs that we learned that we would sing in sacrament meeting as a family around the podium was a song called Where Love Is. And the melody is, where love is, there God is also. Where love is, we want to be. And I am not a singer. And now that my voice has shifted, I'm even a worse singer. But I remember singing that song around the podium, surrounded by members of my family. And having that song make me cry tears of sadness. Because I knew that there was something internal to me that would remove me from that love. Oh, wow. There was something inside me that didn't qualify me for that love. And here I am, eight, nine, ten, younger than eight. Yeah. 
feeling very damaged, feeling very broken, Mm. feeling very unlovable, and singing that song about the perfect love that's in a family that I knew I was disqualifying myself from, not by choice, but by who I was internally, inherently, intrinsically me, Mm. that I had no choice over. Yeah. And so just very painful awareness and knowledge that what I was looking for, a very pure form of love, I was not finding at home. Mm -hmm. And it made me very sad. Oh, I bet. And it made me feel very broken. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah. Thank you. I've never shared that story publicly till right now. Thank you for sharing that with us. This audience matters to me. Yes. I know being vulnerable to this particular group of people is important to me. Mm -hmm. And I know it's important to them. Yes. And I feel very comfortable. And I trust you and Shelly with my story. And that means everything. Like, I hold that right here. I'm gesturing to my heart or where my heart should be. Just kidding. (laughs) But seriously, that (laughs) means so much. For real. Um, You have become so special to me. And I hope you do know that. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. I do. We have met so many amazing people through this podcast. You are right at the top of that list, Kimberly. I love you so much. And I would say this is a very horizontal structure of love and respect and acceptance of all the people that are in the audience. Mm -hmm. There's a phrase in Mormonism of God is no respecter of persons. And I would say if there's any love that we feel for one person or another, it's because we've gotten to know them better. Yes. We've gotten to know them more. Yes. I do know this. If I look down my patient list, uh, I have 37 right now. That's quite a bit. Uh, And I look and I think about each one of them. I just have the same amount of respect and admiration and love, a therapeutic love, an appropriate love for each one of them that doesn't exceed or change based on whose name I'm looking at. Right. I try not to rank the people I have love for. Thank you for the sentiment, though. It is not lost. There are people that become more special to us based on the things that we go through together and the time that we're able to spend with them. Yes. And I also just love your heart, like love the person you are. Mm, Thank you. Not just the wit and the charm and the smarts, the intellect, but you can just tell the type of person you are. You're just so warm and caring and loving, and I I just gravitate towards that. Thank you. It's like a hug. Mm. It really is. Thank you. If you can feel like a personality is hugging you, it's Kimberly. Mm. At least that's how I feel about you. You are very warm to me. I'm sighing. And I've been taught to honor my size. And I teach my clients to honor their sigh. What does it mean? What does it mean? It depends. It really depends. And I think that a sigh is the chance for our subconscious mind to communicate to our conscious mind a problem or something that it has figured out or something that it wants you to recognize. Okay. And contained in that sigh can be relief, can be frustration, it can be pain, it can be fear, it can be a lot of things. But often what we do is we ignore that sigh and we just skip on past it and we go to the next thing because we're too busy to pay attention to what's contained in that sigh. Yeah. But that sigh physiologically is our body trying to return to a space of calm and safety. Mm. And contained in that sigh is a message that if we just stop and process that message just for a moment, it will aid our body, it will aid our nervous system, our emotional regulation. It will help us return back to that place of safety. So I tell clients often, even on a Zoom call, when I see them sigh, say, let's pause just for a minute. Let's examine what's contained in that sigh. Mm -hmm. 
And I have an idea that in this discussion about shame, there might be some tears by people listening. There are most certainly a lot of sighs. Yeah. Oh, the sigh for me just now? What did it contain? Yes. Grief, grief. And if I talk about it, I will cry. Oh, Kimberly. Grief of a childhood innocence that was never truly innocent. I always felt damaged. I always felt broken. So in that sigh is grief. And in that sigh is an understanding that those messages weren't true. Mm. And in that sigh is an understanding that I wish that little Kimberly knew that she wasn't broken. Yeah. And knew that she wasn't damaged, but that I can't reach back in time to tell her those things. Mm. So there's grief in that sigh. Yeah. Yeah, there's grief in that sigh. Mm. And often when we learn about the ways that we are hurt, we have to grieve. For sure. We have to grieve. There's that word have. It can be very helpful. Here, I'm talking like a fucking therapist now. (laughs) It can be very beneficial to grieve the loss of the child that we really wanted to be, to grieve the loss of the childhood that we really needed, that we really should have had. Now, I'll use those words there. Right. Because your childhood really does need to be innocent. Yes. Your childhood should be safe. Yes, absolutely. Because when it's not, then that's why they come see me when they're older. Exactly. Right. <sighs> now I'm sighing. What was in your sigh? Let's talk about that. Uh, my heart hurts when I think of... Um, For who? Well, our listeners specifically, but people who have been damaged by these high-demand religions and yeah. parents who are raised in the high-demand religions and, and don't know how to parent, you know? Right. And they are so worried about the rules and doing all the things and looking a certain way that they forget to just love their kids and let them right and let them be kids love their kids you know Ugh. there's a sigh what did we learn about that songometer or whatever it was where the kids in primary are rated on how well they sing the song right and it's like a thermometer type of thing where it It goes up from outer darkness. Like literally there's a chart that kids, really young kids are looking at that says outer darkness at the bottom. Somebody's moving the the little meter up. If they sing well enough or loud enough or whatever it is that they're expected to do. Right. So they can get to the celestial kingdom. What emotion is that chart baked in? Right. Marinated in, soaked in. To young kids. That is marinated in shame. That chart is marinated in shame. Horrible. Horrible. Mm-hmm. And you just hear story after story after story like this. Right. One of the things I really wanted to do for the shame and guilt episode that we probably won't have time for that might have me come back in the future mm-hmm. would be an episode where we talk about lessons, songs. Mm. Yes. Things that we were taught that started from a core value or a core place of shame. Yeah. Especially at young ages in primary. Mm. I hate it so much. Any song in primary that was in a minor key, that's a song based in shame. Right? It shouldn't be hard to sit sit very still. Fuck off. Yeah. Since this is more of an overview of these concepts, do you want to do guilt after a break? Yeah, let's do guilt next. Okay, be right back. We're back. So guilt. So we've gone over shame, and then I got to process some stuff. So thank you for that. You are welcome. Thank you for giving me space to process. Because I don't. Oh my gosh. I don't get a lot of that. I don't get a lot of that. I bet. So I appreciate that. So shame is an external force that's acted upon us. Guilt. Now this is a, this is a tricky one. 
And you'll see why towards the end of the guilt talk. Guilt is internal. Guilt is when we set an internal expectation that we can't reach. Mm. If we can reach the expectation, there's no guilt. But if we set the expectation high enough, then we can't reach it. That's when we have guilt. Hmm. So if I set the bar high, then I try and miss, try and miss, guilt, try and miss, guilt, guilt, guilt. So one of the ways that I work with clients and anybody, honestly, they don't have to be a client for me to work with them. I say, if you're battling guilt, let's find the thing that you're guilty about. What is the thing that you're missing? What is the mark that you're aiming for that you're not hitting that's causing the guilt? If we can lower that mark, if we have the ability to lower the expectation, the internal expectation, to a place where we can hit the mark, now we eliminate the source or the feelings of guilt. I like that. If the mark is too high and we aim for it and we miss it, just shy of it. Oh, shoot. Came close. Mm-hmm. Let's lower it just a little bit. Okay, I've lowered it. Now I can clear it. Oh, sweet. Right. Now we can celebrate. Now we can feel happy about hitting the goal. Mm-hmm. But if the goal is out of reach, oh, crap. And the farther the goal is out of reach, the less we're able to achieve that, the greater the sense of guilt. But aren't we taught to raise that bar really high? Don't we just keep raising it higher and higher and higher to ourselves? Say that sentence one more time. <laughs> we raise the bar higher and higher and higher. We do this. Ba- no, back up, back up, back up. Aren't we taught? Is teaching external or is it internal? That is external. Right. If we're taught at a young enough age, now this is important, track with me here. If we're taught at a young enough age by people in a power dynamic or a relationship dynamic great enough, that's disparate enough or far away from us enough, and if that person that we want to love so badly is somebody that's a primary caregiver, and we learn those messages very, very young at young ages, now those messages of shame that are external They're internalized Mm. as internalized shame. Mm -hmm. So often when I'm working with someone who's unable to identify who set the goal, where the setting of the goal came from, what time of their life they learned that goal at, if they're unable to identify all those things specifically as things that they generated, then we we can often see that it is an external source of shame mm-hmm. that demanded them to accept this goal. Otherwise, love would be withheld. Mm-hmm. Care would be withheld. Uh, respect would be withheld. And so you will do anything you can to make sure that you are doing those things to hit that external mark of you need to do this. You have to do this. You should be this. Right. Hello, queer people. I'm talking to you. Trans people. I am talking to you. Hello, raised within Mormonism. I am talking to you. We get messages of shame from a young enough age by people and institutions in a power dynamic so disparate, so far from where we are. And we want to please either our parents, our leaders, or our bishopric, or God. Yeah. We want to please them so badly that we will accept those messages of shame, those messages of should have, need to. At a young enough age that we don't know that they're not messages that we generated. Wow, that's confusing, isn't it? Right. Hope I made it simple enough to track. This is why I like to draw it out. Yeah. When you hear external messages of who you need to be, have to be, should behave, 
when you learn it at a young enough age, mm-hmm. now we're operating on the brainstem area of the brain. Often those messages are stored next to our autonomic bodily systems, intrinsically baked into who we are at a subconscious level. We take those messages of what we have to do and we internalize them at our core Yeah. so that we may not ever be able to really tell where they came from, who set those goals for us, when those goals were set. And we may not feel that we have any power to say no to those messages of shame. Mm-hmm. That's when it gets really tricky. Often that's trauma. Mm. Unwinding those messages is often trauma work. Yeah. So listeners and you and me both, Mary, if we have things in our life that we're trying to do, that we're constantly missing the mark, Mm -hmm. and we can't reassess and reestablish and lower that goal, lower that mark to something that we can hit, if we lack the ability to set that goal and lower that goal to a place that is achievable, that is external shame that was heard at a young enough age that we internalized it as our own intrinsic sense of self. Yeah. Because I think what might happen if you feel like the goal is too low, the bar is too low, and you accomplish some easy thing in your mind. Oh, you're cheating. It was too easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too easy. Doesn't count. Right. And you discount the achievement. You blow it off. For sure. And it could be as seemingly small as you barely can get out of bed in the morning. Oh my gosh, yes. Your goal that day is to maybe get something to eat. That's your goal that day. Drink some water. Drink some water. And maybe that's the goal for the day. And that's okay. It is not fair for me to judge you based on your goals and your choices. It's not fair. I don't know your situation. I don't know who you are. You may be suffering from chronic depression and be in a worldwide global pandemic and have housing insecurity and have food insecurity and be suffering from recovering from trauma or other things. right? And if all you could do is get out of bed and eat a little bit of food and drink some water and go back to bed, you're operating at capacity. You can't do more. Yeah. If that's you, if you find that this is you, again, please hold yourself with grace and compassion. It is not your fault. This is not something that you are. This is something that has happened to you. Exactly. So shame and guilt. Shame is external. If it's heard at a young enough age in a power dynamic that's very inequitable by someone that we want to please or love or receive love from, then those messages of shame become internalized very quickly and can be mistaken for guilt. Guilt is when I get to set my own bar and I don't hit it, then I feel a little guilty. We work with guilt by identifying the source of where the goal is being set and understand that we might need to realistically reassess, mm-hmm. talk about you know, things that are achievable, yes. that are realistic goals. We might need to you know, work on uh, cognitive uh, distortions about things that are truly inattainable. That's a whole therapeutic process. If it's shame that we're working on, then we identify maybe where the message came from, what time of our life the message came from, maybe from whom the message came. Yes. And then once we really can see that it is an external source or an external messaging, then we do boundary work. Mm. Then we separate ourselves from that other narrative. This is not me. This is someone else imposing on me. Now, I will drop another piece of homework. Please look up James Marcia. He's a psychiatrist. He has four stages of identity development. 
And the one that I'm talking about, where you accept somebody else's idea of who you should be instead of who you know you are at your core, that stage of identity development is called identity foreclosure. You literally have your sense of self-identity foreclosed on by someone else's idea of who you should be. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? It's way heavy stuff. And I'll tell you, I read about this in my first quarter of my first year of graduate school to become a therapist. We sat in class for six hours, and I was given that term in lecture probably hour two. And I don't remember a damn thing that was said the rest of the day, because that phrase, when I dug a little bit into it, I didn't listen to the rest of the lecture. And instead, I took a deep dive onto identity foreclosure and James Marcia, and I immersed myself in that. And I was going through some grief and some mourning because I realized that's what had happened to me as a young Mormon boy. Wow. When I realized that, it literally, Mary, it felt like a two by four had hit me across the face. Wow. I'd had my identity foreclosed on. And that is some heavy, heavy, heavy shit. Yes, it is. Raise your hand, listeners, if you can relate to this. I am seeing a thousand hands. Yes. And I grieve and I mourn every one of them. Me too. It's not fair. It is not fair. Mm -mm. We did not ask for that. No. (sighs) That sigh contained so many things for so many people and so many regrets and so much sadness that it's impossible to contain. That's what that sigh had. Mm. I really want to acknowledge that this information can be very triggering. Mm -hmm. This information can put you in a heavy place. Yeah. This information can make you rethink a lot of things in a lot of ways that might not be healthy. So if you're feeling like you're in crisis at all, please reach out. There's a lot of ways we can reach out. If you're working with a therapist, please reach out to them. If you're working with friends that you think are stable enough to work with you, please reach out to them. If you're in a higher level of crisis, Trevor Hotline is a great one for the queer peeps. The trans lifeline is a great one for the trans people. Mm -hmm. This is heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. It is. We literally need to honor that we had our identities stolen from us. And we need to give ourselves space to grieve and to mourn that loss. Yeah. And that can be a heavy space. It sure can. And then there's potentially looking into the future like, well, who am I? Then we get to build resilience inner character, identify pillars of strength, identify our support system, Yeah, identify things that we have already done that were hard. Mm-hmm. We've done hard shit. Yes. Give me a break. Every fucking person listening to this podcast has done some hard shit. For sure. If you're listening to this podcast, you've done some hard shit. <laughs> yes. Give me a break. Absolutely. Right? Yes. And pat yourself on the back. <laughs> especially if you're queer, especially if you're trans, and you better be patting yourself on the back. Because if you're not, I'm coming over there. And I'm not only am I kicking you in the ass, but I'm also going to pat you on the back. <laughs> it's a twofer, and I'm kind of excited about it. <laughs> it's a twofer. And then when it's all said and done, I'll give you a hug. Oh, I love it. Socially distanced, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> We've done hard stuff. Yes. We made it through. If you're listening to this podcast with eardrums that are vibrating and a brain that's functioning, you are alive today. You've lived through heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. I honor and celebrate that. Yes. And again, if you're listening to this podcast, you're looking for help. You're looking for support. You're looking for community. You want to make your life better, which in and of itself is an admirable, noble pursuit. It is. 
Don't you just want to hug all the listeners? Yes, all the time, all the time. I know, because I see the comments on the Facebook group. I get the letters. We read the emails. Your heart is just bursting for everyone. Yeah. I just want to give them all a hug Yeah. and tell everybody it's going to be okay. It is going to be okay. Don't you think? Yeah, I really do. Kimberly, I'm so thankful that we have you as a resource for real. You are one of my favorite people. Thank you. I appreciate that. And we're going to do more on this topic and also codependency. We better. Oh, we are not done. Codependency is coming up. (laughs) Yep. We're going to read from that fascinating womanhood book. Oh, my God. Woo! Break out your copies. Oh, my God. Also... Poor little Bryce Blankenegel, not little Bryce Blankenegel, poor Bryce Blankenegel. <laughs> poor widow Bryce Blankenegel. <laughs> poor widow Bryce, Bryce, you have to say Bryce. Bryce Blankenegel. <laughs> I made him look, well, I didn't make him, but I encouraged him to look up a foom pod to stump Kimberly. Oh, are we going to do this? Are we doing this? Should we still do it? We can still do it. It's been pretty heavy. We could end on levity. All right, well, let's do this Foom Pod then, and I'm going to say cue music. It's the fucked up Mormon phrase of the day. Okay, Kimberly. Yes. Today's fucked up Mormon phrase of the day is... <laughs> Law of Sarah. Law of Sarah. This is from Bryce? This is from Bryce. Oh, no wonder. I got to tell you, I have a respect for Bryce recently that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sorry, I'm trying to butter up Bryce so that he hurries and sends me the answer right now. (laughs) I'm I'm texting him. You can't see me. That's cheating. We're pretty good friends. You all are going to be doing an episode together soon. So I'm super excited to do that because he and I talked about it a little bit, what we want to do, and it's going to be action-packed. I love this so much. Um, So back to Law of Sarah. I honestly... Sarah. Oh, Law of Sarah. So the short answer is, I don't know. Okay. And the long answer is, Blake and Angle, where the crap do you get this shit? <laughs> right? I don't know that one. Would you like me to read this to you? I kind of want to make a guess. Okay. I'm going to guess it has something to do with either motherhood or sacrifice or um, selflessness uh, or the, the, like the feminine divine that we would aspire to as women, that we would be taught to aspire to as women <laughs> in the church. Oh, you are so cold. <laughs> with that answer. Then I'm going to say it's everything except that. And today's opposite day. <laughs> uh, All right, let's hear it. Law of Sarah, go. It's so bad. Okay. The law of Sarah is the provision and the polygamy revelation. Oh, jeez. Here we go. Commanding <laughs> the first wife to accept her prospective sister wives or suffer damnation. That is the law of Sarah. I clearly missed that day in seminary. Oh my God. That is something that we would never have studied in seminary, by the way. Right? Love Sarah. Wow. So that requires the woman to concede, basically, Mm. to having a a polygamist wife. Yeah. Wow. Or suffer damnation. Either way. Uh, It's interesting. I'm starting to work with some of the people in uh, Colorado City and um, Hilldale, and uh, there's trauma in those communities, as we well know. Mm. Yeah, there's deep trauma down there. So, and that law of Sarah is indicative of that trauma. Mm-hmm. Literally, those women, speaking of identity foreclosure, oh, so the answer to the foom pot is a law of Sarah is identity foreclosure. <laughs> so she gets a bell. That's the answer. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. So yeah, the law of Sarah would be identity foreclosure for a polygamous woman. She no longer has the option of maintaining her uh, identity as a only wife but must instead, by no choice of her own, accept 
somebody else's imposed condition. That's very interesting that the law of Sarah literally is the definition of identity foreclosure. How did Bryce know that we were talking about that today? It's like pulling a tarot card and having the tarot card be exactly what you need to hear. (laughs) Either that or everything in Mormonism comes down to identity foreclosure. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. I think that we're onto something there. I really honestly do. Now you get the bell. Thank you. (laughs) You're definitely onto something. So thank you for the Foompod. That was uh, enlightening and difficult and not even close to what I was thinking about. Wow. It's always more horrific than you want it to be with this early Mormon church stuff. You know, that could be the tagline for next year's Sunstone Symposium. <laughs> right? Mormonism, it's always more horrific than you, <laughs> than you think it is. <laughs> I know. Uh, Mormons. It would look great on a mug. It would look great on a <laughs> bumper sticker. Button. <laughs> for bumper sure. Sticker. For sure. It's always more horrific than you want it to be. <laughs> Uh, what's in that sigh what's in that sigh it's funny because it's true that's what's in that sigh yes yes and if you don't laugh at least once in a while you're going to just cry constantly you're crying (sighs) well maybe we should leave this one here but we are going to we're going to pick this up again with the same topic oh yeah we're putting a pin in this oh yeah there's so much to go through with this stuff and uh the fascinating womanhood we got to get into that book Yep. Yeah. And I actually want to break down codependency with some details. So this is actually good that we're going to wait and do that later. Yes. And this means more episodes with Kimberly. Yeah. I had to do like a weird kind of Muppet voice. I'm not sure what that was. All right, Kimberly. um, Love you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You're the best. So are you. And all the best people know it. Can't wait to have you on again. You will. And uh, I would like to thank Dan from Extension Audio. Love you, Dan. On a personal note, thank you, Dan, for the lovely, lovely reach out. That was great. And Dan is so talented. Mm -hmm. Seriously. Dan, love you. Don't ever leave. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. Right? And everybody listening, please steer clear of cults because they are no joke. Mm -hmm. Talk to you later. Adios. Adios.